of 2010 and 2020. A new way of thinking about identity traveled from academic departments at elite universities to internet subcultures, to social media, and to mainstream media, finally landing at many of our most important social, cultural, and governmental institutions, transforming long-standing rules and norms. My guest on today's program is among the first to take a comprehensive, scholarly look at the roots of this ascendant ideology and how it became so tremendously influential, and today we'll hear why he believes it is ultimately a trap. Yasha Monk is a professor at Johns Hopkins University, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and the founder of Persuasion. His new book is The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. Yasha Monk is my guest today for our 100th episode of Lean Out. Yasha, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to have you on for our 100th episode of the podcast. What an honor. It's so great to have you on. We started the podcast with the question, what has happened to our culture and specifically to our media? And your book is one of the best answers I've come across so far. Uh, The identity trap is calm, even-handed, deeply researched attempt to understand the emergence of a new way of thinking about identity, why it has gained tremendous influence in your country and mine, and why it's ultimately a trap. You call this new ideology in the past, sometimes referred to as woke, by a more neutral term, the identity synthesis. Set this up for us, Yasha. What are the key beliefs of this ideology? Yeah, so there's there's two ways of thinking about this. One is the main themes, and then the other is we boil it down to the main kind of credos. So, uh, you know, my book does four things. It tells the intellectual history of where these ideas actually come from. It shows in the second part how they went from being influential in universities and so on about 2010, but marginal to society as a whole, to actually having tremendous influence throughout society. It uh, offers a a, a serious and and level-headed critique of how these ideas are now applied to all kinds of areas of life, from arts and culture of cultural appropriation to social media or free speech to our politics with identity-sensitive public policies. And finally, it offers a better way forward, a a better response to them. So so diving into the first part of this, I show how uh, this ideology comes from the ideas of postmodern thinkers like Michel Foucault, post-structuralists like Edward Said and Gayatri Spivak, uh, critical race theorists like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, and each of them contribute a major theme. So from Foucault, we have a rejection of universal truth. From Said, we have an embrace of a kind of form of discourse analysis, but what it is to do politics is to critique the prevailing discourses, trying to empower the people who are marginalized by them. From Spivak, we have the embrace of what she calls strategic essentialism. So the acknowledgement that these essentialist accounts of identity may be philosophically untenable, but for strategic purposes, she said, we need to embrace them. So we should encourage people to really lean into their identity, to make that the most important thing of themselves, to define themselves as some private schools in the United States now say as racial beings. From Derek Bell, we have the rejection of universal values and neutral rules. He was a deep critic of what he called the defunct racial equality ideology of 
uh, the civil rights movement. He came to be skeptical of a landmark ruling of Board versus Brown of Education, which helped to desegregate schools in the United States. He believed that we have not made any progress on racism or other kinds of forms of bigotry in, in, in Western democracies, including both Canada and the United States. And finally, we have the idea of intersectionality, um, the idea originated in Kimberly Crenshaw and then broadened in its interpretation that if you stand at a different kind of intersection of identities than I do, then really, really not able to understand each other. And so I think you take those things together and really understand a lot of the kind of things that is driving people uh, in our politics and our culture today. And as you point out in the book, that many of these thinkers that you've just cited have expressed misgivings about how these ideas are currently being used. Um, what is your most charitable reading on why you think this ideology has caught on to the extent that it is now transforming the key rules and norms of our institutions and with such a remarkably short period of time from around, as you identify, from 2010 to, to 2020? What is its lure at heart? So, so the book is called The Identity Trap. And when you think through that metaphor, uh, you know, a trap has has a lure as well as a punishment, as it were, right? It has a nugget of cheese that attracts you towards the trap. Um, and I think it's important to understand that lure. Um, you know, in my case, or in this case, I think it is the idea that, you know, when you look at society, you see many injustices, racism and sexism and other forms of marginalization do persist. That is, that is true. And so uh, what makes this ideology tempting is that it claims to be the most radical, the most uncompromising prescription for how to fight against these injustices. And my critique of it is not that it goes too far in the right direction, which is something that people often say, um, and to which the response rightly is, well, hang on a second, you know, how can you go too far in fighting against racism? How can you go too far in fighting against sexism? Shouldn't we be going all out? We should. I, I want to go all out against those things. But, but my critique is that the trap consists in it taking us in the wrong direction. In U.S. American history, I think one of the proudest traditions is that uh, of, of Black liberals, which runs from Frederick Douglass through Martin Luther King Jr. to, to Barack Obama in many ways. And what they said is, yes, society is unjust. There are deep ways in which we're failing to live up to the promises of a constitution of a Bill of Rights. But what should we do? We should live up to those promises more fully. Uh, free speech is not something we should reject because it allows terrible words to be spoken. It's something that's the dread of tyrants, as Frederick Douglass say, the thing that allows the marginalized to fight, for example, for the abolition of slavery. The check that was issued by the Bank of Justice was fraudulent, King points out, but we shouldn't rip up the check. We should make sure that the Bank of Justice actually cashes it. And so I think the lure comes from saying, we are the most radical people fighting to undo these injustices, the trap is that they will actually tear up the institutions that have allowed us historically to make progress, that make Canada or the United States today much more just, much more tolerant, much more diverse, much more thriving societies than they were 200 or 100 or 50 years ago. Mm. Well, I, I want to spend a moment on the media, which has played a pivotal role in disseminating this ideology. You dive into the nuts and bolts of why the identity synthesis, as you call it, why these stories have become so popular in newsrooms, tracing the evolution of the trend from Tumblr to everydayfeminism.com to Vox. Walk us through the sort of surprising incentives online that exist to publish these sorts of identity synthesis stories. Yeah, so the first step, I think, was, uh, you know, these new social media platforms like Tumblr, 
that allowed people to redouble really down on their identities and to invent new forms of identity, right? When If you were in high school a little bit before social media had its heyday, there was a limited set of identities you could embrace because you have to have other people share an identity to fully sort of put importance into it. And there's a limited number of people in your school. But on Tumblr, you could tag uh, ideas. You could have these memes, memes uh, that go viral that suddenly create these new ideas. And then you could find the 20 people all around the world who might identify with that as well. So that's where a lot of these identities like demisexual or liberal gender actually come to be. And then this finds its form in these written articles that sort of try to create the ideology that holds these different ideas together. Um, you know, I first stumbled across everydayfeminism.com in the mid-2010s, and it was really interesting because it had these things like, you know, five things to say to your yoga teacher who thinks cultural appropriation is fun. So it's kind of like a BuzzFeed version of these sort of ideas, right? And then the next crucial transition is when most of the article reads uh, in the print media actually come from social networks. So when even something like Vox.com, a new upstart in 2013 is founded, most of the views they get is from the landing page of a website. People would go to Vox.com and choose what to read. And that meant that they had to cater to a broad cross-section of readers. Because if you went there and nine out of 10 articles were really boring to, you wouldn't come back. Well, around 2015, uh, most of their readers started to be uh, sourced from Facebook and Twitter. And so suddenly, if you had 10 pieces, none of which appealed to a lot of the audience, but each of these really traveled within these networks connected on social media, then that was a really good audience strategy. And so they went much more into first-person stories, into stories of, of experiences of discrimination, stories that would really travel across those kind of networks and other publications did as well. And then finally, this was the years in which there's big questions about the future of the New York Times and the Washington Post and all these mainstream newspapers and outlets because the print revenue was cratering. They hadn't yet figured out how to make up for that with subscriber revenue and online ads. So they were desperate for clicks and they hired a lot of the people who were most successful in this new genre of journalism. And so we saw just a, a huge transformation in the way in which first newspapers operated. Many of the key terms of what I'm calling the identity synthesis, um, you know, like microaggressions to structural racism and all those things just skyrocketed in the percentage of use in, you know, the, the Washington Post or the New York Times, or I imagine uh, the, the Globe and Mail, you know, between about 2010 and 2015. Yes. And there is some evidence, uh, some data on this in this same trend took place in Canada as well. Um, this ideology is profoundly illiberal, as anyone who has criticized it can intest, uh, myself included. Um, it does present itself as leftist, despite discarding key leftist beliefs like universalism, like the importance of free speech. Uh, you come from the left, as do I, and you have a really impressive body of work interrogating far-right populism, a radio documentary, two books, a dozen academic articles and policy reports, about a hundred episodes of your podcast and well over a thousand op-ed articles, reported articles, keynote speeches, and TV interviews, as you, as you point out in your book. Why have you come to believe that the far left is the sort of yin to the far right's yang? Yeah. Um, so, you know, sometimes people ask me whether my, my views have changed and, and they haven't. I continue to be really worried 
about the threat of somebody like Donald Trump winning the presidency in the United States in, in, in 2024, as well as other kind of liberal populists around the world, like Narendra Modi in India, or Recep Erdogan in Turkey, um, or Hugo Chavez's uh, successor in, in Venezuela. Um, uh, and I was worried from the start about the uh, strain of rejection of values like free speech on parts of the left. It's something that I wrote about in People versus Democracy, my first big book, which was really about the threat of populism. So I think I've been really consistent on that. Uh, and, and, and you know, the bad effects that come from these ideas uh, today are, are these ideas about identity is, first of all, that they often fail to accomplish their goals. But when, for example, you separate kids out in elite private schools at the age of six or seven or eight into different affinity groups, telling them if you're black, you go over there. If you're Latino, you go over there. If you're Asian, you go over there. If you're white, you you go over there. Uh, you might think that you're encouraging the right kind of racial self-identification and encouraging people to stand in solidarity with each other against injustice. But actually, I think you're setting up a zero-sum battle between those groups. And the white kids are not going to learn to declaim their white privilege. We tell them, you need to embrace your whiteness. And the most important thing about you is your racial identity. They're much more likely to actually become white supremacists than they are to become anti-racist. So these ideologies are often counterproductive. Um, I think they really uh, constrain how people can perceive themselves. They make a false promise to say, you want recognition and a form of social acceptance in the world. And we all want that. And of course, we need to fight against uh, derogatory stereotypes and forms of discrimination in order to facilitate that. When the society tells you that you're inferior, it's hard to have that. Any form of that must be eradicated. But to say you're going to get this acceptance by just defining yourself by the particular intersection of identities which you have is, I think, deeply counterproductive because that will never really define who you are. Who we are depends on our own idiosyncratic tastes and personalities and views about the world. You're not your sibling. Your sibling probably has a similar intersection of identities, certainly they have the same gender, uh, but you're different from them in important ways. You're never going to feel, feel seen as a person if you're seen exactly the same way that your sibling is seen, right? And so I think it's a personal trap, but most importantly, it's a political trap, right? If you tell people that they have a choice between a pessimistic vision in the world uh, where everything is going to shits, but you can blame the outsider, or you have a pessimistic vision of the world in which we're never making any progress, in which our institutions and society is deeply corrupt, in which you yourself are secretly a terrible racist, even though you have no inkling of that yourself, and you have to blame yourself, then most people are going to choose to blame others. And so politically, uh, as you were saying, I think one is the yin to the other's yang. I think that Trump's election, for example, in the United States has really helped these ideas conquer a lot of mainstream institutions. And in turn, the hold that these ideas have over so many institutions is actually part of what makes those far-right populists electorally viable. Mm. And I'm, I'm wondering, too, about the translation into public policy. You do uh, talk about that in the book. And, and the example you give is during uh, the pandemic with the CDC Advisory Committee recommendations to distribute vaccines according to identity group. Can you walk us through that example and, and other test cases you've come across for how this ideology plays out in public policy? Yeah. So one of the important things to me in the book was to show that the stakes here are real. Um, you know, there's plenty of cases of people losing their jobs in 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 in, uncertain, in unfair ways of uh, people being pushed out of institutions in these kind of witch hunts and progressive spaces in ways that I'm concerned about. 
But we're all aware of those kind of stories by now. I wanted to show that even beyond that, these ideas are really inflecting how the educational system works, what you can do in art and culture, and even what kind of public policies we pursue. And perhaps the most extreme case of this, in my mind, is the way in which the United States chose to roll out vaccines in 2021. At the time, these life-saving vaccines were very scarce, and so every country in the world has to decide who gets them first. And virtually every country in the world said, look, we'll make some kind of exception for hospital staff because we need doctors to be healthy to be able to treat patients, right? But after that, we basically do it by age because uh, by and far and away, the strongest effect on this disease was on the very elderly, right? I mean, it's just, you know, and, and a very elderly vaccinated person was much more vulnerable than, than a young and non-vaccinated person. And, uh, you know, if they had the same vaccination, that was just like, you know, exponential growth of danger as you grow older, right? And so they said, look, first the over 90s, maybe over 80s, maybe over 75s, whatever, right? You had a correlation. The key advisory council to the centers of disease control that was tasked with making the recommendation in America rejected the idea of that. It noted that according to its own models, that's what would save for most lives. It noted that it would be easiest to roll out because it's relatively easy to tell people if you're 75 or over, now you're eligible, right? But it said the problem with that is that the elderly are disproportionately white. And therefore, on grounds of equity, this is an unacceptable course of action. Now, this, is, this had disastrous consequences. According to the CDC's own model, it probably killed more Americans. It ended up helping the privileged. Um, they allowed a much broader you know, group of essential workers to have equal priority or sometimes higher priority. And that ended up being a group including finance executives. I was included in it as a professor in the state of Maryland at Johns Hopkins University, even though I wasn't allowed to be teaching in-person classes. Uh, but I was an essential worker. And what happened is that there suddenly were far too many people eligible, but still very, very few appointments available. And so who got the appointments? People who could spend all day clicking refresh on various websites, who could go far out of a way to rural locations to, to go and nap or spots at pharmacies, you know, that had more capacity. And in the end, it probably killed more non-white people as well. Because if you give a COVID vaccine to two 25-year-old black Uber drivers instead of one 80-year-old black retiree, likelihood is more black people are going to die. I mean, it's just such a striking example. And I want to talk a little bit now about, about Canada. As you note in the book, identity synthesis ideas are, are deeply unpopular with the public at large. And you note in the book, quote, it is unlikely that fervent proponents of the identity synthesis will win a majority in parliament. And yet Justin Trudeau, one of the most fervent promoters of these ideas, has won three straight elections here in Canada, although the polling, to be clear right now, is looking very bad for him and his government. But up to now, we do appear to have been a bit of an anomaly worldwide. What do you think it is about Canada that makes us such fertile soil for this ideology? Yeah, it is an interesting question. Um, uh, you know, why... Uh, why Canada does seem, especially in many of its official institutions, to have embraced these ideas even more strongly than 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 the United States. You know, I think part of that is this kind of national ideology of niceness, right? I mean, Canadians think of themselves as as particularly nice in many ways. They are. I mean, I've loved uh, the many times I've visited. Uh, you know, Canadian cities, even in your biggest cities, people just have this kind of uh, friendliness um, and often warmth. 
you know, and, and what makes, as we're saying, these ideas alluring is that we're saying, hey, we're just being good and nice and doing everything we can, you know. And so so I think it becomes much harder to argue against them. Perhaps Canada has a little bit less of a, a confrontational public sphere. And so when these ideas are presented as being uncontroversial and obviously right and the kind of thing that every decent person, every nice person would embrace, it, it's sort of harder for uh, critics to say, look, they, uh, they may genuinely mean well, uh, and sound nice, but when you actually think at what they imply for what a society is going to look like, they're, they're not going to be. You know, I have wondered about the role of religion in this. I don't think, as, as some people do, that uh, this ideology is literally a religion. Um, um, I, I don't think that's a helpful way to frame it. But I do think that it sort of fills a religion-shaped hole in many countries, and that the, the form of that religion is much more Protestant than it is Catholic that, you know, the Puritans continue to influence in some way, uh, certainly the United States and, and perhaps in a kind of way Canada, um, not through explicit moral beliefs, right? The, the, the beliefs of a Harvard professor today have nothing to do with the beliefs of a Puritan and their views about sex before marriage or something like that. But in the kind of emphasis on purifying a moral community and perhaps in the absence of a greater role for religion, that kind of basic moral rep- repertoire is now applied to these kinds of questions. Um, what do you think? I mean, you, you you thought about this question more deeply than I have, I think. I think that there is a less com- combative political culture in this country, for sure. I think that's part of it. I, I do think the niceness that you're talking about plays into that. But I also think that there is, I mean, we're we're a very large country. We're we're very geographically spread out. We're very diverse. And there are less and less public squares in which these things can be talked about in sort of a common set of terms. And so you, you have all these kind of small conversations happening, but nothing happening as a country until now. Uh, I think all of those things play a mm. role, but I haven't come up with a fully satisfactory answer yet. I mean, the other thing, and, and, and I hope I don't offend all of your uh, Canadian listeners by saying this, but there's some interesting political science research I seem to recall that says that a lot of the differences between Canada and the United States are basically about Canada being a lot more urban. So, you know, a rural Canadian actually often has quite similar views to a rural U.S. American. And, uh, you know, a resident of Toronto or or you know, some other big Canadian city actually has pretty similar views to a resident of New York or LA. Mm. It's just that the uh, relative ratio of these people is quite different. Um, and so obviously, since a lot more people in sort of urban and highly educated environments hold these kind of views than in more rural areas, perhaps actually it's just that, you know, perhaps Toronto is not more quote-unquote work than New Yorkers. It's just that Toronto has a bigger weight on Canadian culture relative to what 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 New York has on American culture. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good thesis, and I, I think our media also. I mean, in in the U.S., you have the conservative press as a counterweight. Um, we we don't really have a strong conservative press in this country, and so there's less of kind of a battle of ideas taking place as well. But I want I want to take a particular example from Canada that you point to in the book. And and you talk about the concept of progressive separatism. This is popular in Canada right now. And one example you cite is the National Arts Centre hosting performances for Black-only audiences. Walk me through your chief concerns about this trend. 
Yeah, and that, by the way, is also a trend that is pretty international. Uh, there was just a scandal in Germany where a German museum had exactly the same thing. The defense was 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 the same, by the way, as the the defense of a Canadian theater, which say, you know, first they basically presented it as this is, uh, you know, non-whites only or black only, uh, as the case uh, that differed between the two cases. And then they said, oh, it's just a suggestion. Of course, we wouldn't have turned anybody away. So, so, so actually, the, the controversies really played out in the same kind of way. Well, look, I think it's just a fundamental question about what we should encourage as a culture and as a society. So uh, in a free society, you have a freedom of association, right? If you want to spend the majority of your time around people who share the same religion or the same national origin, who speak some language other than English or French, that is your good right in a free society. And partially that is um, within reasonable bounds what makes up the, the, the richness and the diversity of places like Toronto or Montreal and so on, right? Uh, but there is a question about what should our institutions actually encourage? So is it a good idea when teachers go into first or second grade classrooms and segregate kids in in this kind of way? Should our publicly subsidized institutions say, uh, we're going to encourage that form of self-separation, that form of self-segregation? And I think that's a, that's a deep mistake for important reasons. You know, diverse societies are hard to uphold. And what we should aim for is a form of true solidarity and mutual understanding. What we should spend taxpayer dollars on is institutions where people have more opportunities to meet each other across those boundaries and form civic friendships, have an opportunity to say, hey, what's your experience of life? What is something that I might not see from my own perspective? But I'm going to learn by being in conversation with you. And instead, what we're doing in more and more institutions is to really encourage people to be separate from each other and often to say, any form of what's called cultural appropriation, any form of mutual cultural exchange is problematic rather than being one of the richnesses of what happens when you live in a big metropolis with people from all over the world butting up against each other. But one thing I think about is many elitologists used to uh, you know, have roommates living in the same room, literally in the first year of university. And they used to be assigned quite randomly uh, or sometimes with an explicit view to trying to match people who are different from each other, saying, wouldn't it be interesting if this kid from a rural area uh, uh, who perhaps is white and, and somebody from an urban area who has a different religious background, different ethnic background, they live together and they come to know each other. And many really important friendships formed in that way. Well, I think it's telling with David Trent is in the opposite direction. Most universities now allow people to request their own roommate, and that's usually somebody who went to their school or who they met on social media, who shares a lot more characteristics. And many in the United States, I don't know if it's true in Canada as well, are now building separate dorms for African-Americans and for Latinos, encouraging students, not requiring them, but encouraging them to self-separate, self-segregate in that kind of way. I think if you're thinking about how do we build a society in which we have Less there is some competition between groups in which we see each other as Canadians or as U.S. Americans, as people who have things in common with our compatriots across those kind of boundaries. Something that's really important if we want our democracies to succeed, then, then I think these, these trends are really dangerous. And I, I just have two more questions for you, Yasha. The, the first is that in the end of the book, it, you give a full-throated defense of liberal democracy. And, and the price that we pay to live in a relatively peaceful society is that we agree not to force our beliefs on others. And in this era of cancel culture, this pact is, is eroding. But you have a number of really useful suggestions for how people can argue against the identity synthesis in the most effective and less personally risky way possible. These include not vilifying opponents, appealing to the reasonable majority, making common cause across the ideological spectrum. 
you warn those pushing back against this ideology not to become reactionaries. I thought that was such an excellent point. How does one guard against that? Yeah. I mean, so first of all, I think it's important to claim the moral high ground. Um, Look, I get why people are often nervous arguing against these ideas. There's enough stories of people paying a very high price to that, that that often people say, well, perhaps we'll just stay silent. Or or when I do, perhaps I should be really nervous. Um, But I think there is a way, uh, it's never going to be zero risk, but there is a way of maximizing your chance of having an impact and minimizing your chance of those kind of adverse consequences. And so one way of doing that is to claim the moral high ground. A lot of people end up either being so overly apologetic, but of course, I mean, let me make 17 concessions and and, and say that I'm really sort of ashamed to be saying what I'm about to say, but but now finally I'll say it. By the time you say it, you sound guilty. You sound like you're, you know, you think yourself that you're somehow a bad person. On the other end of the spectrum, there's the jerk, right? The person who's saying, hey, you know what? You're going to hate me for what I say anyway. So I'm just going to say this barb and I'm going to say it in the most provocative possible way. Because that way, you know, it's a little bit like the kid who um, is so afraid that they'll fail a test that they don't even try because that way at least they preserve their self-image or something like that. No, I mean, I've thought about these ideas long and hard. Hopefully you have as well. Or if you want to think about them harder, if you want to understand more about them, read The Identity Trap, buy the book. Um, And I think that they are the best set of ideas for building a better, fairer, more thriving society. I'm proud of the ideas that I defend. And that's how I speak about them. Uh, from that calm uh, confidence to be fighting. I might be wrong about some things. That's fine. But I'm I'm fighting for what I think is right. You know, some other things are trying to persuade people, not talking to the biggest wingnuts, but trying to persuade what I think is the reasonable majority, not vilifying people who disagree. A lot of the people who are the best, the most eloquent, the most compelling critics of this ideology used to be true believers in it. Um, but yeah, the most important thing ultimately is not to be a reactionary. I think a lot of the times right now, because what people uh, who oppose these ideas have in common is something negative rather than something positive, it's tempting to just say anything that somehow might be called work, I'm going to be against, no, I'm going to reject. And I'll just take the opposite opinion of what somebody thinks who's quote unquote work, right? But but if you do that, you're outsourcing your moral judgment to the people you disagree. You're not actually thinking about what your view of a world is. And so I think there's many different grounds on which to oppose these ideas. I'm a kind of left liberal, there's conservatives, there's Marxists, there's Christians, uh, evangelicals, there's all kinds of different people who have reason to think, hey, the most important thing in the world is not what ascriptive group you're born into. There's something else and you want to build a society that lives up to different kinds of values and different kinds of principles. And whatever your set of highest, most aspirational values are, for the society in which you want to live, consistently argue for that and criticize the identity trap uh, when it conflicts with those values from that, from that principled ground, not by just uh, a knee-jerk reaction to anything that you might call quote-unquote woke. Mm. And just lastly, Yasha, this is a deeply personal topic for you. As you write in the book, all four of your grandparents uh, were sent to prison for their communist beliefs, and you do have family that died in the Holocaust. How does your own family history attest to the dangers inherent to the identity trap? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I feel torn about that because uh, for I, I, I'm not tempted in any way to be a communist. Something about the universalist ideology that my grandparents have seemed very attractive, right? To say, hey, we want to be less defined by uh, the kind of group into which we're born. We want to overcome those kind of prejudices and build a society in which all 
you know, Workers World Unite, in which we all are standing in solidarity with each other. I think that is part of the impetus I had for for for, for being on the left, and and that is the part of the left that I continue to find attractive. But there's also two realizations that my personal story gives me in, in a different way. One is that grand ideals can lead you astray in terrible ways. My grandparents were honorable people who took personal risks for the ideas they believed in. The regimes they helped to build up were terrible regimes. And so the fact that many of the people who are fighting for these ideas today are, are honorable people with noble ideals doesn't mean that we should be uncritical towards how they want to change the world. The other one is, is, is slightly different. And I don't want to overstate the, the analogy. I think there's important differences between the two cases. Uh, but I grew up as a, as a German Jew. And uh, I was often, uh, I experienced some anti-Semitism, but I also experienced a lot of philo-Semitism, a lot of people sort of trying to treat me especially well and prove to me how sorry they are for the nation's past and, and sort of how sympathetic they are towards my group. And I always hated that. I always felt that that made it incredibly hard to actually be friends with them, incredibly hard to actually feel like an equal, to actually find the kind of affirmation we were talking about earlier. And so when I moved to the United States, I, I came to be in the weird situation where from being in a social context where I was the most salient victim group, I went to a context where I was seen as a white guy and therefore sort of, you know, uh, the privileged group. And I was in certain ways expected to treat others the way that I didn't like being treated when I was growing up. And I thought, you know, we we we, we have to do better than that. I'll, I'll give you a personal example. I was teaching a seminar a good number of years ago at, at Harvard on on political writing, and it was a workshop-based seminar. So, you know, the students would, would do drafts of work, and then we discuss them as a group. And the idea was to give constructive feedback to see what's good in the draft, but also to criticize what didn't quite work, right? These were talented students, but they weren't bad experience of that form of writing. Um, and that worked well until uh, a student who's a very nice uh, girl who's Black wrote this quite, you know, politically uh, engaged speech uh, about African-American issues. And it was a, she was a talented student. It was a good draft. Um, but like every other draft in the class, it had some issues with it, right? And her, and her colleagues just were too worried somehow or too respectful or too differential to, to critique the draft. And I got mad on her behalf because there's no indication she'd given that she would get offended or mad or, you know. And she deserved the same educational experiences as the other kids in that class, right? She was only going to improve and the way that other students improved if, if if she had the same opportunity to see what was working well in her draft or which was plenty and what was not working so well, which was also some stuff, right? Um, and, and, and so I think I've, uh, you know, my personal experiences in Germany have made me attuned to the ways in which those kind of social norms aren't helping to build the kind of society that that I think we would all want to live in and 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 that this student, for example, deserved. Mm. Well, Yasha, I think this is such an important book. I'm so delighted to have you on the show today for our 100th episode. And thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for a great honor. I had a lot of fun. Lean Out is hosted by myself, Tara Henley. And this week's episode is produced by Harrison Lohman. If you want to support independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.